Take your Bible, please, and, and turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. You know, we've been in a study um, through the book of Acts, but I stumbled upon something a few years ago that has since become a regular practice for me in that I like to take my first Sunday in the pulpit upon returning from vacation just to share something, uh, to share with you something of what God is impressing upon my life and stirring in my heart. Uh, it's an opportunity, really, for me to speak from the heart and testify to God's ongoing work in my life. Um, it may not be necessarily profound, uh, but it is meaningful nonetheless, and hopefully it is uh, of some benefit to you as well. Last year, for example, I spoke from Psalm 66 about transferable truths. Lessons uh, I learned last summer while in Africa that uh, apply to all of us uh, at all times. Uh, the year prior, I spoke from John 16 about joy, specifically uh, about how God has promised to take our earthly sorrows as real and as painful as they are in the moment and use them uh, in ways we, we cannot possibly fathom and use them uh, to, to, to bring the fullness of joy into our lives. Uh, three years ago, I spoke from the Gospel of Matthew about how God has created us with purpose and how amazingly He invites us and exhorts us to participate with Him in His purposeful work in the world. And this morning, I just want to talk with you about the all-surpassing love of Christ. When did you last thank, just think to yourselves, when did you last thank about God's love? And specifically, His love for you, for you. Have you ever questioned God's love? And specifically, His love for you. Have you ever thought, sure, sure, God may love me in a perfunctory, impersonal way. He may love me through Jesus, which I suppose is better than nothing, but I'm just not sure. In my heart of hearts, I sometimes wonder if He really loves me for me. Ever had those thoughts? Ever doubted God's love for you? For you. This is, this, is, uh, this is what I want to talk about with you this morning. 
And I, and I just want to say, just by word of, I don't know, I don't know, pastoral counsel, is if you're taking notes today, which is great, which is great, but I only ask that if you're taking notes today, please don't allow your note-taking to keep you from what God is saying to you today. In other words, I don't want you to be so focused on what I'm saying, making sure to jot it down word for word just so that you fail to hear what God is saying to you today. I want to ask that you just allow yourselves to be in his presence this morning with your Bible open before you and just allow him to speak to you today, to you. And I think we'll find that this message, his message, is aimed more for your heart than your head. Recently, I was putting my daughter to bed, my youngest, my three-year-old Sophia. And like all her siblings before her, all of them, like all her siblings before her, she asked me to sing some songs. And I've sung all sorts of songs, of bedtime songs over the years with my kids. Funny songs, made-up songs, duets that we sometimes sing together, worship songs, hymns, new songs, and old songs. And some songs I've sung to each of my kids over the last 17 years. And one of these is the simple chorus known as Jesus Loves Me. And I know I'm not alone. Countless children in parts all over the world have drifted to sleep to the words of that song. But why? Why is that song so well known? It's certainly not for its complexity, right? It's not for its brilliant composition or its depth of meaning, its depth of lyric. It's, it's none of these reasons. Instead, it appears it's simply because of the simple but oh-so-meaningful truth it conveys. The reason I've sung Jesus Loves Me to Abby, to Olivia, to Phoebe, to Elias, and now to Sophia, is because I want them to know that Jesus really, truly, undeniably loves them. I want them to know that God is like that. And I want that for me, 
and I want that for you too. And upon coming to this prayer in the third chapter of the letter to the Ephesians, one senses that that's what the Apostle Paul wants for us also. He wanted the people in the ancient city of Ephesus who had placed their trust in Jesus. These were, these were believers. These were already Christians. He, he wanted them to know the love of God for each one of them. He wanted them to know it, not just intellectually. He wanted them to know it experientially as well. This is a prayer for spiritual strength, and nothing, nothing has the power to strengthen you like knowing in the innermost parts of your being that God loves you. In fact, I am convinced that what, that what you need today, what you need today, what I need today, what we need today more than anything else, anything, what we need today more than anything else is to know that God loves us more, far more than our present understanding of it. And so let's read and consider this passage together. Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read, begin at verse 14 and and to the end of the chapter, verse 21. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Father, I want to thank you for our time this morning in your word, and I want to thank you for for the fact that even this, even that we have your word is is an act of love on your part because you are disclosing yourself to us. You You are showing us who you are. You are revealing to us your heart. And in this case this morning, your heart of love. And so please help us this morning as we gather around these words. Please help us to hear your voice. Please help us to receive what you would say to us. Please let it have, let let your truth have its full reign in our hearts today. That we may leave this place in a deeper 
more fuller, more freer, more love-saturated communion with you. Show us Jesus today. O Holy Spirit, move among us and in us that Jesus Christ would dwell in our hearts always. And it's in his name we pray, amen. This morning I want to take this passage in four parts. Here we learn the reason Paul prays, the request Paul makes, the result Paul seeks, and the response Paul champions. The, the reason Paul prays, the, the request Paul makes, the result Paul seeks, and the response Paul champions. First, the reason Paul prays. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, what reason is he referring to? He's, he's referring to, to all that God has done to save us and secure our redemption in Christ, as well as our togetherness with one another in Christ, both of which uh, he has been explaining from the very start of this letter. The letter opens in chapter 1. You don't need to turn there, but I'll just quickly provide an overview. It opens in chapter 1 with a clear declaration of God's saving work, what He has done for us in love. From the opening words of this letter, we, we, we read how God blessed us in Christ with every heavenly blessing possible. He chose us in Christ long before He laid the earth's foundations. Even then, He had us in mind and settled on us as a focus of His love. Even then. God determined to make us holy and blameless uh, in His sight. God brought us into His eternal family so that we could know Him as our Heavenly Father, Not as an impersonal deity, but as a a loving Father. God delighted in this, to be gracious with us in Christ. He provided for our redemption and forgave us through the willing sacrifice of Jesus. He lavished upon us the riches of His grace. He provided for everything. He provided for everything just as He saw fit. And He set out to do this from the beginning. It was a long-range plan that He faithfully accomplished in Jesus, perfectly uniting the things of heaven and earth in Christ. And chapter 2, uh, chapter 2 begins with a similar declaration as Paul again uh, describes how we who were spiritually dead in our misdeeds and sinfulness have been made alive by God, and this, according to verse 4 of chapter 2, and this, because 
of the great love with which he loved us. And then in the second half of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, Paul talks about how this message of good news is now being revealed to all peoples, to Jewish people and non-Jewish people. In fact, when God saved the Apostle Paul, who was Jewish, he sent Paul into the world to share this message with others, specifically to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. These were people who didn't grow up uh, hearing about God or learning about God or receiving and reciting God's many promises as the Jews did. They didn't have the benefit of all the background, all the rich history of the people of Israel. And yet God, in His love, predetermined that they would also be brought near to Himself and the centuries-long division between Jew and Gentile would be removed. You see, through Jesus Christ, God has brought people from all walks of life into a new humanity of sorts, a new community, a family of faith, united by the Spirit of God, in the, in, the, in, the, in the great name of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul prays. This is why, God, why Paul calls, calls God Father and why he bows before the Father in prayer for his spiritual brothers and sisters located in Ephesus. It's because they were now partakers with him and with believers everywhere in this new life that's found only in Jesus. The statement, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, it underscores the truth of God's sovereignty that ultimately it is God who, who gives us our identity. So no wonder Paul bows. No wonder he assumes this posture of humility and deep reverence. And what does he pray for? What specific request does he make? Well, he prays that they might be strengthened by God with this incredible news of his love. According to the riches of his glory, he says, in other words, from the abundance of his riches... He prays, may God grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. The essence of this prayer is a request for strength from God. Now, now why would they need a prayer for strength? Think, think through this with me. Why would they need a prayer 
for strength. Why do people need prayers for strength? Why do we? Why do we need people to pray for us like this? Because we get weak. Our faith weakens. Our faith wavers. As much as we wish it wasn't so, our trust in the Lord isn't as steady or consistent as we'd like. Am I right on this? When we pray for others, then, it's not only about their particular requests. It is about that. It is about their particular requests, but not only about that. It's also about the nurture of their faith for what God is doing in them, that they would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in whatever their circumstance so that their confidence in God would deepen and that God Himself would become more real to them in the moment. So that it wouldn't be a faith in a God up there, out there somewhere. It would be a faith in the one who is right here with me in this mess and loving me through it. Church, I need people in my life to pray for me like this. And you do too. Paul asked the Father to strengthen the Ephesian believers by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we are reminded here of just of the presence and ministry of God's Spirit. He lives in you. If you are a child of God and He empowers you in your inner being, the, the stronger in the Spirit you become, the more at home you are with Jesus, or as Paul prays, the more Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith. Now let's, let's dig down just a little here. You know, people talk about accepting or inviting Jesus into their hearts. And it's a way of expressing their desire to give their lives over to Jesus. I think, I think this is some biblical foundation for that idea, that concept of of, of, of giving Jesus full reign of our hearts, of our lives. But even after receiving Christ, even after receiving Christ in this way, we must understand there is more of Him to receive. Like any relationship, there is more of Him to know and experience. As one man put it, when talking about this verse, he said, Paul here is referring to an experiential enlargement of what is already theologically true. In other words, it means that when Jesus came into your life, you got all of Him. That is theologically true. 
And yet, there is still more of him to know through experience. So Paul wants us to be strengthened by the Spirit so that our experience with Jesus would grow progressively more personal and soul-enriching. This, uh, this indwelling of Christ occurs in the human heart and only through faith, it says. And the word used here for dwell, I love this, the word used here for dwell uh, refers to a permanent residence. Meaning that when Jesus comes into your life, He's not just passing through, but He's looking to settle in. It's, 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 about being, it's about Jesus being at home in your life and about you being at home with Him, meaning unguarded, unfettered, and free to enjoy His company. Free to enjoy His company. You know, I've taught, met and talked with many believers many of whom have been walking with the Lord for years. And yet, still to this day, they have difficulty being free in His company, in His presence, of just sitting in the presence of God. And Paul is saying, He's praying. He's praying for the Ephesians. In a sense, he's praying for us. And he's saying, Church, I want you to get to a place where Jesus is so at home in your heart and where you are so at home with him. It's like the difference between having dinner with mere acquaintances versus sharing a meal with close friends. And then we come to the very heart of his prayer. To the actual result Paul seeks. That you, verse 17, look with me, verse 17, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I want to ask you, what motivates you? What motivates you this morning? What motivates you? What motivates your walk with the Lord? Think about it. You know, many times in life we are motivated by what we don't have. Uh, for example, a promotion at work. People typically don't want dead-end jobs, right? They want opportunity for promotion so they can work toward, they can strive toward a job they don't yet have. High school students are motivated to work hard at school, not simply to get good, to learn or get good grades, but, but for some of them also to, to gain acceptance into their university of choice. 
we, we eat better or exercise more because we're driven by a goal to be healthier and more physically fit. And these are just examples of external motivators, of being motivated by what we don't already have. But in this passage and with this prayer, Paul aims to motivate us not by what we don't have, church, but by what we do. Not with what we haven't already received, but with what we have received in abundance. He's getting at those heart-level motivators that influence every aspect of our lives, including our lives as followers of Christ. And he's saying, essentially, he's saying that the greatest motivating factor in your life, the greatest motivating factor, the one supreme thing that can affect you and propel you forward in any given circumstance is the infinite and incomprehensible love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God wants you. He wants you. He wants all of you. He wants you all. And He wants you individually. He wants you. He wants you. God wants you to stand with both feet firmly planted in His love, to be rooted and grounded in it, nourished by it, and secure in the knowledge of who you are in God's eyes. And I just confess to you that I am convinced that I have brought more angst upon myself, more angst in life, because I've gotten this wrong at times. I've made the terrible error in thinking that God's love for me is somehow predicated on my ability to perform or measure up. Though I know, I know this, right? I know that salvation is by grace through faith alone. I know this, but the performance-based mindset is hard to shake. And there may be some hearing these things today, and you know exactly what I mean. And the irony is that you may sincerely believe, you may, you may sincerely believe that God loves others. You're just not convinced He loves you. Not really. Especially when you're unlovely or those times when you're at your worst. Not unless you jump through specific hoops. And then only then maybe I can gain my way back into his favor. God wants you, together with all the saints, as Paul asserts in in verse 18, to know the fullness of His love. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit wants to strengthen your understanding of His love. Like if we were to sit down and say, Holy Spirit, what do you want? What do you want to do in my life today? It's as if you say, you know what I really want to do? 
I really want you to know that, that God loves you. That's what I, I really, because that's where it all begins. That's where it all begins. Anything that comes after that, if it's, not, if it's not coming out of this reality of God's love, it's all performance. Those who've gone before you, like the Apostle Paul, have prayed for you, and they want you to know the vastness of God's love. And what is, what is the breadth and length and, and height and depth of it? Can it be measured in these ways? And the answer is no. And that's the point. The point is that it stretches broader and extends longer and reaches higher and digs deeper than we can imagine. It's unmeasurable. The picture here is of a love that extends in every possible direction, forwards and backwards, left and right, up and down, every possible direction. It's an all-encompassing love. It hymns you in. It surrounds you. There's nowhere you can step where it's not there. I want you to see the breadth of Christ's love and how it includes all it includes all peoples from all walks of life and covers all manner of sin. You cannot outsin this love. I want you to see the length of Christ's love and how it extends from one age to another and one generation to the next and how this love remains sure and steadfast even when you don't. I want you to see the height of Christ's love and how it reaches to the heavens and assures you of a future with God. I want you to see the depth of Christ's love and how He has descended from heaven to consider you, to identify with you, though sinless in His perfection. He willingly enters your plight and He took your sins upon Himself and bore them and suffered for them. Did He have to do this? By no means. But he chose to. The Bible said God, says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but God, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. And then, of course, we know this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Today, today we've celebrated with Andrew and Sarah, with their family, their extended families. We've celebrated the birth of their son, Jack. And I'm told, and I can't wait to hear more of this story, but I'm told that Andrew actually delivered their son. Which is something they will always treasure. And if that is something we treasure on the human level, imagine how much God treasures us given that he 
has delivered us, but delivered not from the womb, not from life to life as Jack was. No, 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 no. He delivered us from the grave, from death to life, by dying for us and raising us again. Even on a human level, love is measured by what you do and by what you're willing to do. It's not measured by what you get, but by what you give. In marriage, for instance, if I say I love my wife only because of what she does for me, how she completes me, how she fulfills me, if I say I love my wife for those reasons, I really don't love her at all. I love me. It's when I give myself to my wife and to the life we share, when I give myself willingly and joyfully and sacrificially, that's when true love is revealed. But even that is an inadequate illustration because marriage presumes that two people are equally invested in the relationship, yet God loved you when when you contributed nothing. Nothing but ignorance, nothing but corruption, nothing but falsehood, nothing but rebellion, nothing but even hatred at times. Hatred for him. I know there are some in this room and, and, and some you know who, who at a time before they came to know Christ, they hated God. God loved you before the birth of the entire cosmos. Before creation itself. God loved you before your birth. Before you were born. He loved you before you were born again. Spiritually reborn by His grace when you, when you trusted in Jesus. He loved you uh, when, when you had no love for him, not even a thought of him, he loved you not because you loved him first or even loved him back. This wasn't a reciprocal relationship. Now the Bible says, in this is love, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son for us. And God loves us still, Perfectly and unfailingly, despite our many imperfections and failures, because, hear this church, God is love. Love isn't just what He does, it's who He is. This love, this is some of what God is doing in me right now because this love, this love, this love is confidence, peace, assurance that God is with you and for you. This love, this love is acceptance. 
This love is permission to be vulnerable, to put down the masks and the pretense, willingness to see and allow yourself to be seen. This love is freedom, freedom from anxiety, release from all the limitations we place on our relationship with God, permission to live freely and fully in Christ just as He intends. Paul wants us to know this love that surpasses knowledge and exceeds our human ability to comprehend. So here, I love this, here the Father and the Son and the Spirit, all three are at work in this passage. All three are working in unison to expand your capacity to know the love of God. When praying for the Ephesians, Paul asked the Father to strengthen the soul, to, to strengthen their souls through the ministry of the Holy Spirit so they would know Christ more personally and therefore, verse 19, be filled with all the fullness of God. Anybody want to be filled with the fullness of God today? You see, the fullness of Because the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. We read of that all over Scripture. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. We are filled as Jesus dwells in us. And Jesus dwells in us more fully and freely and experientially as we receive and rest in His love. And so we've considered the reason Paul prayed and the, the, the request Paul made and the uh, result Paul desired. And in verses 20 and 21, we read of the response Paul champions. And we won't unpack these verses. We'll just touch on them this morning. I've actually preached here in, in, with you. I've preached full sermons on these two verses alone. F- so for today, I just want... I just want you to know that that Paul concludes this message or this passage and in fact the entire first half of the letter to the Ephesians with a simple call to worship God. And I just want to say, and so let me read it here. Let me read it. Now to Him, to God, now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly Then all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This God who loves you with an all-encompassing, all-surpassing love, is, is He not worthy of your love in response? Uh, that's essentially the point. This God who loves you so immensely, is He not worthy of your love in response? And the answer is, of course He is. And so, church, give Him the glory He's due. Let all in the church glorify and love the Lord from generation to 
to generation. And then I have just one final thought in conclusion. They say that repetition is the key to learning something so well that it becomes second nature. That we commit things to memory and we build muscle memory the more we say and do those things over and over again. That our thoughts are shaped and behavior is formed as we train our minds and our bodies through consistent practice. And if that is true, and I believe it is, then wherever you are in life today, wherever you are, in life today, whatever you're facing in life today, whatever the state of your relationship with God today, I encourage you to recite and reflect on this truth always. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. God, we thank you for your love this morning. And we pray this prayer that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit even today so that Jesus Christ would be more at home in our hearts and we be more at home with him as we receive and rest in his love. Do that for us, we ask, for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. Amen.